welcome to So Fast, So Furious, the ultimate Fast and Furious podcast. Dominic Toretto lives his life a quarter mile at a time, so we're watching the Fast and Furious movies a quarter hour at a time. I'm Zach Bassetta, and with me as always, Vito Lapicola. How's it going, Vito? Hey, everybody. I'm doing great. This is an awesome, awesome show today. I'm so I excited. I agree. And Anthony, how's it going? Vroom, vroom, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my uh, catchphrase I'm trying to nice. like perfect vroom vroom perfect vroom vroom motherfucker hashtag it and and yeah. and, and, and say it with zero affectation like you yep. vroom vroom motherfucker yep. like you like you really sort of almost mean it going to make the t-shirts and everything <laughs> so <laughs> we 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 have i mean special guest doesn't really seem to cut it so yeah. uh, we have statement <laughs> of the year yeah the director of Fast and Furious is here, Mr. Rob Cohen. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Vroom, vroom, bitch. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, it's official. See, that's how you pull it off. Yeah. That's how you do it. <laughs> so the, the premise of this podcast initially came from Dom's line, obviously. Uh, he lives his life a quarter of a mile at a time. That's right. That's right. Well, um, yeah, it, it was a scene written by David Ayer, and uh, one of the scenes that made it to the film untouched from him. And, uh, uh, of course, the studio wanted to cut it out. Ugh. They went, that whole scene in the garage, they threatened me to cut it because I was a day over schedule, and they wanted me to shoot a very stupid, simpy, wimpy ending mm. to the film. They f and I was in the place where I knew the scene in the garage where... Dom explains his father's death and his reasons for going into a life of crime mm -hmm. is that moment of misjudgment where he beat the driver half mm. to death um, and was banned from the tracks. So his life became kind of a dead end life. Uh, I knew that was the pivotal Yeah, that's scene. kind of the heart of the movie. It's the yeah. heart of the movie. It's the poetry of the movie, because David Ayer is a very poetic writer, really. Street poetry, but very poetic. Mm -hmm. And it cemented the friendship of the two leads, because Paul Walker, Brian Spilner... Brian Earl Spilner. He sounds like a serial <laughs> killer. Serial killer right. name, yeah. You know. Typical white boy name. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, you know, he, he's been told by Ted Levine, the cop, his cop boss, you know, this guy's beat a guy half to death, it's Toretto, you know, all the rest are fumes, you know, all this stuff. And I know in the mind of the undercover cop that's still hanging out there, I'm liking this guy and I'm loving his sister. I love this world we're in, but this guy might be very dangerous and might in fact be like almost a murderer. And so when he explains what happened in such human terms, this father that he adored, mm -hmm. burning to death in front of his eyes for a driver who was reckless and ran him into the wall on purpose, and that he he lost all logic and his fury, all judgment and all restraint, and he basically beat that guy into a pulp with a wrench. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, when Paul Walker's character with Brian understands that, he drops his guard completely because mm -hmm. now, okay, all the bad stuff the cops say is accurate, but they don't ever tell you the reasons. Right, yeah. his motivation right. is what makes sense. Yeah. And that's what I, I think is one reason these movies do so well is because those character emotional beats are done so well. Yeah, there, something that's really amazing is when you watch that first film is that Vin Diesel basically is holding back. Anytime he's pissed at anyone in the movie, you can see that he's remembering that moment that he beat that man. And he's holding himself back, especially when Brian reveals himself to be a cop at the end. I love that. And we'll scene. get to that yeah, scene yeah, yeah. in a yeah. little minute. But like that scene is so emotionally charged. You feel like Vin Diesel is going to beat the crap out of him. It is. But he holds back because he knows the consequences. Mm -hmm. It's really, really stellar stuff. Well, I had all through that movie holding Vin back because Vin likes to swing big hmm. when he goes and sometimes it becomes overscaled. And I just always, from the first scene where I sat him with his back to the camera while everybody else was acting, 
I I wanted him to be a character that had a very tight control around himself and even the choice of the RX-7 was I wanted a big man in a small car that he was chafing against the restraints interesting and he carried that over into all of his other work he really did take that persona and and just carried it with him and everything else he did so it's like you shaped his future essentially yeah and then we did triple x so we further shaped his persona to the public but yeah, I think that, that there's a lot of misconception just about the, the first film, the series in general, because I've, I've told these guys, when the, the Fast and the Furious came out, I was about 19 years old, and I was the total demographic, but not interested whatsoever. And I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, like Limp Biscuit. I was really anti-Limp Biscuit, and it was all over the trailer. Yeah, same here. <laughs> and so for me to come back, you know, 20, 18 years later and, and enjoy it as a film, like as a movie fan... I think is just really interesting and like how many obvious uh, old Hollywood influences there are in the film. Like uh, you mentioned in the commentary about that first heist being kind of a, a take on stagecoach. Stage yeah. yeah. But it seems to me like there's a lot of Western elements throughout the film. Like anytime Dom's crew shows up, they're very much like a posse riding yeah. in together. Right. You know, Toretto's is like a bar where Vince tells Brian, you know, to leave town or, yeah. and the, the races are kind of like, shootouts in a way and so i was wondering if like westerns in general had a big impact on uh, your filmmaking well yeah because you know in terms of iconic filmmaking there was no more iconic genre up until this time than the western mm-hmm. i mean noir had an iconic uh you know pantheon of bogart and you know douglas and Mitchum and all the guys who did the great film noirs mm-hmm. but the western had towered over the f- the American filmography mm-hmm. and those westerns whether it was Ford or Hawks or Peckinpah or they were questing for an iconic status for not only the characters in these westerns but the west mm. and what it meant the frontier what it meant you know the Frederick Jackson Turner thesis of the frontier on the development of American civilization and uh, when I looked at what we were making it, it was to me a western where cars horses were cars drivers were cowboys you know there was the sheriff and the deputy totally you know the, the whole world of it I structured like a a modern day street western and of course you have the the code between the men you know there's yeah. that code of honor yeah. that that these men follow and that's what makes them bond and that's what makes them unique from everyone else around them yeah yeah and and, I, and they're like a family they're they're not blood relations any of them except Mia and and Dom but there's a family Dom has created in which he set himself up as the father figure, and uh, whereas me is kind of the mother figure, and then Michelle and Johnny and Matt and and of course uh, Jesse, you know. Poor uh, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah, I feel really bad about <laughs> everyone that I killed off. I feel really bad about because. They missed out on millions and millions of yeah. dollars. Yeah. But oh, well. if I get to direct number 10, I'm going to bring Jesse back. I was Jesse going back. to ask you that at the end of the interview, but but do you have any plans to go back? I mean, I think it would be amazing to see you do it, the last it, yeah. film also. It's, it's really, I would love to do it, you know, but it's really up to Neil Moritz, the producer, and Donna Langley, the head of the studio. You know, for whatever reasons, they always feel that I will want to bring it back to the original and they were doing so well with the no gravity, no consequence yeah. rules of, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. And, uh, and so, but at the end, you should, it should be brought back. That's to what I was going to say, yeah. 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 yeah, it makes sense to me. And I do like, I love in the commentary how you said that you wanted to film the, uh, the street races like it was almost science fiction. How you get that sense of like the Millennium Falcon or, or the Enterprise kind of taken off and you see the cars doing that. So it does fit. I mean, there's a sense of heightened awareness in this movie 
that I think would perfectly translate if you're going to do the 10th movie, you know? Even yeah. if they take it into space, like they say they're, they're joking about. I, but, I um, and again, it's well, the relationships that's, that ground well, the whole series. Yes, that's, that's the thing that I think is really amazing is, I've, I, okay, so to set this up, Zach saw the movie and became a fan later. Yeah. I was a fan of the franchise from the beginning. Anthony has never really seen them. Yeah. So we're kind of like three spectrums. <laughs> and so I remember when I first saw this movie, you know, the thing that hit me... Yeah, I didn't have a really close relationship with my dad. All of my friends, I, I mean, I know nothing about cars, but I understood that my family was outside of my real family. And so that really struck me. And those themes carry through so well, no matter how crazy the movies have gotten, those nuggets that you created in that first film stay true. The, the, there's always the shots of, of Dom and Brian like looking at each driving and looking at each other in the movies and, and doing certain, you know, like they took all of your cues and built on it. So it's, again, it's not like you don't know what you're doing. Well, it is a great it. example of, of ways that like a lot of uh, these remakes and reboots today, it's like they sort of lose the spirit of whatever the original thing was. And yeah. it seems like at least until <laughs> a certain point, like they did hold on to those, like uh, what worked for the first movie yeah. and, and, you know, elaborated on it further. It's a strong base for sure. You know, um, the family thing is really amazing. I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit. You said, looking back at this film, uh, you wanted it to be a little bit like American Graffiti. How you, When you cast the people, you know, you had Michelle Rodriguez. She was not really a main character, right? Done, you oh, yeah. you kind of made up her character as the movie went. Right. And she becomes, I mean, she's a, a major, major component yeah. of the rest of the series. Yes. Especially for Dom. She's kind of like his anchor you know, what was that process like? Was she non-existent in the movie? You yeah, met her in, the, in, your... in the original script, I don't even know if she was referenced. Hmm. There, oh. there might have been a reference to Dom has some sort of connection at the party scene with somebody named Letty. I'm, I'm straining at the cords of memory here, the mystic cords of memory, <laughs> uh, as Lincoln said. But um, what I knew was... I wanted Michelle Rodriguez in the movie. I knew that in putting together this textural group that was multiracial, so on, I wanted her, her strength, her, you know, ability to take on a man with mm -hmm. a straight face mm -hmm. and make you worry for the man. And, uh, and, I thought I I wanted to have a, a love interest for Dom. Um, and so I went to her and I told her I wasn't going to even send her the script because when she went to read the script, she wouldn't find anything. And I sat down with her and I said, look, you have my word. I'm going to try now to develop you as his love interest and you as a racer and you as like part of the, the gang, part of the family, but it's not on the page, and you have to, I cannot stop now to do the writing before I get a commitment from you, because we're about to start shooting, because it was very late in the process, and I just need you to shake my hand and know, look me in the eye, I'm going to deliver a really good part for you, and... She's going, sure, man. <laughs> you know, whatever you say, dude. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, that movie uh, gave me my forever crush on like really badass women. Oh, like, yeah, she when I when the moment she steps out of the car on that movie, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and she yeah. can oh, totally yeah. pull it off. I mean, yeah. like, she's, she's, she's like a total badass. She's got like skates. lightning bolts on totally, her totally. on her fucking boots. And <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. You know, her, she her pulls up her, boots. Yeah. her low rider jeans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sniffs. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, she's great. I smell skanks. Skanks. Yeah. <laughs> Both of your female leads are written very strong, and they have purpose. A lot, yeah, a lot more than just a damsel or you know something to fight for and everything. I I really appreciated that. Um, my relationship with the movies was, as we said earlier, I had never seen them. Um, I think I was oh, two thousand. I was like fifteen or sixteen when the movie came out. Living in a small town, everybody was either into cars or skateboarding and kind of that punk rock scene. I was part of that scene. So when I saw the the, uh, the trailer for the movie, like probably when I was like seeing like that crappy Dungeons and Dragons movie, um, 
I, I remember joking with my friends and calling it loud and obnoxious. <laughs> um, but it, it just, it wasn't my thing. And I went back and watched the first movie as, you know, because kind of have to, to be a part of this. We podcast. brought him around. He's yeah. 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 And, um, slow conversion. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's Don't rush in now. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's so much more to this movie than just cars and stunts. And I really, really appreciate that. Vin Diesel's character, Dom, most of all, I, I think he has so mm-hmm. much nuance to his character, his facial expressions, his body language, his delivery, yes, the lines. I mean, ab- absolutely. Um, I was wondering because that's his first starring role. How much did you work with him on? You know, kind of being the lead of his own movie. I worked with him very heavily, and sometimes he enjoyed it, and sometimes he didn't enjoy it. But the the point was, I knew. He had the zeitgeist presence. I knew this kind of mysterious, mixed-race guy who, if you looked at him and said, he's Puerto Rican, you go, yeah. No, he's Italian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, he's half black. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no. No. I mean, he's Indian. Yeah. You know, you could Mm -hmm. keep going down the list of ethnicities. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's from southern Italy. He's Sicilian. Yes. You know, and it would just, whatever you plugged into him, and I had seen his short and multifacial, and, you know, I said, that's what America's ready for. Mm-hmm. You know, we need a multiracial hero. Just the same way when I was running Motown in the 70s, I said, Diana Ross, black glamour, let's make a movie about a, a glamorous woman from the wrong side of the tracks who rises high in the fashion beauty world and then returns home where her truth is and everybody laughed like what do you mean black glamour what are you talking about you know and so weird to think about I, i mean if you heard the comments that i heard in the 1970s and i was of course, in charge of Billy D. Williams and Diana wow. Ross and Richard Pryor and wow. James Earl Jones. And we made these movies against all odds and never got the support in the release, even though Mahogany broke all records when it opened. It even beat the Godfather record when it opened. Wow. And yeah, uh, The movie's amazing. But yeah. it's so gratifying now having done The Wiz and done Bingo Long, Traveling All-Stars and Mahogany and so on, in a way to see Black Panther, to see, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I kind of had that history of I've been pushing multi-ethnicity mm-hmm. since the 70s, mm-hmm. and here was my opportunity to cast this movie in a very different way than universal movies were normally cast which was you know the ron howard school of casting everybody's a nice white kid from suburbia even bruce lee yeah i'm sure you had people tell you can we get a white guy to play bruce lee and just like you know please do something with his eyes or something i didn't didn't give him that choice okay good good because jason lee was amazing but 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 that that's where the vin of it all came in and i Mm -hmm. saw him in um pitch black Mm -hmm. and i went okay that guy has a very strong presence. I don't know what his bloodline background is, but I know he represents the new America, mm-hmm. and I want him as the lead. I had already cast Paul, as you probably know, from mm-hmm. running into him in Maui six months before. Yeah, and you were like, I want you to be the lead of this movie. Yeah, and pretty, so I needed cool. the other tonality, and the studio mm-hmm. was pushing Colin Farrell, and no. and yeah, <laughs> and and out of courtesy, I met with Colin Farrell, and I he's a very lovely person. He's a very fine actor. He's actually a better character actor yes, than is. leading yeah. man. Sure, yeah. and yeah, he's you know, uh, but you know, I called up Stacy Snyder, the head of the studio, and said it's not going to work because Paul and Colin. You know, it's like the range of A to B, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. They're, they're too similar. Yep. Mm-hmm. We need something else. And she said, well, what are you talking about? I said, I want this guy, Vin Diesel. And she had some choice comments. <laughs> and I said, no, you're not seeing the whole thing. You're not seeing the audience for this film. And frankly, not even telling tales out of school, the studio never got it. They didn't get the movie. The proof that they didn't get it 
even at the end, is they never asked to see the movie to the first research preview. Wow. And one of the reasons the film is so much unlike a studio movie is that there was no studio interference because they didn't care. They had other things they were worried about than the little spring break car racing movie. It's so and, funny. Yeah. And when they saw it, the numbers were so through the roof that it was like there was only one negative comment in the whole thing, which was cut the stupid ending, which was the ending they forced me to shoot to hold on to I live my life a quarter mile. I was going to ask you about that, if that was something the studio asked you to put in there or if you had shot that. No, I shot that under duress Mm. because I needed that garage scene. Yeah. Are we talking about the post credits scene? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We. It's funny because we, we, we had a guy on on the last episode. He was talking about how the Fast and the Furious franchise is the Avengers before the... It's like the yeah. Avengers for car people. Matt Kyle And it says, is the first one. Yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah. Matt Kyle yeah. likes to say the movies are about superheroes and their superpowers are cars. Yeah. yeah. And I love Basically, that. Yeah. That's I love great. That to think about that's it. That's great. <laughs> hats off, <laughs> Matt. Yeah, man. And one of, one of the things um, I was talking with these guys about before we started uh, you know, recording today is, is your representation of L.A. I moved to L.A. in 2001 when that movie came out. And I always watch my, my joke is that tough guys in movies are usually they're like, they just took a white guy and put a headband on him. You know, you're like, this must be. I'm like, I could Street. kick this guy's ass, you know, in a, in a heartbeat. You depicted a Los Angeles that was the Los Angeles that was around me. I, I moved here. I was in Koreatown. Yeah. Everyone around yeah, me got it. was of a, of a different, you know, ethnic origin and stuff yeah. like that. And so, like, I would watch these movies and I'd go, everybody's white. Like, what is happening here? You know, like, everybody's beautiful and this and that. You managed to get this cross section you shot in unconventional places you know uh, echo park and things like that um you mentioned on the commentary you wanted to get the hills because it's this beautiful backbone of the city and stuff and the way that you represent la is so lovingly done i think that has to have had an impact on how big this movie was because again there were people coming to see this movie and they were like that's me I see myself on the screen for the yeah. first time. Well, but not, not only that, but the authenticity of using actual street racers as the extras. You know, right. It's like yeah. their reactions, you can't. Again, fake. it's not a group of white guys. Exactly. With I mean, like, it's, on. Every, with their hats on backwards. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they look. Oh, the part, he's a tough guy because he's wearing his hat backwards. Exactly. Yeah. So I think a lot of those things kind of add to the authenticity of the film yeah, in general. Well, well, even in the four car drag. One where I use visual effects, you know, because one day I, I, I said, the movie, here's what's wrong with car racing movies. Every car racing movie I've ever seen, including NAS, NASCAR coverage, is how racing looks. Mm-hmm. I said, that's, that's not what it's about. It's about how racing feels. Mm. I have to get inside the racer's head to understand when you hit the NOS what that kind of acceleration actually feels like. And then I said, well, maybe it's like at the speed of light where light bends. Mm. So I did one of those visual effect shots where Walker hits the NOS and, and literally the whole world is, is concave mm-hmm. because of, the, of Einstein physics. And um, uh, it, I was shaving my head one day when I went, because I had been saying, these racers are, they're centaurs, they're half man, half car. Mm. And I'm trying to find a vocabulary to explain this idea of how racing feels. And then I went, that's it. You go down Vin's arm, through the stick, into the Wankel engine, through the Wankel engine, to the boost at the wheel. And then yeah, to the driver, and you got that connection that's mm-hmm. never been seen because yeah. normally you see them put it into gear and then you cut to the car and right. it goes away. It's always a tire shot. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. You know. peeling out. But yeah. I took that that trope and I added this new thing of literally flying through the engine the way he understands when he hits throttle, mm-hmm. what the gas is doing, what 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 the engine is doing and he's creating this power supply 
And, and that was an iconic shot. I remember even when the movie came out. I mean, like people remember yeah, the that audience. Shot. I remember them just kind of going, "Whoa!" Yeah, yeah. 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 Cool. And I did it again with the Nas hit, mm-hmm. but but that was to reinforce the idiom that when you are a racer, you feel your car. Mm-hmm. You you mm-hmm. you're not thinking about your car. You're not calculating your car as much as you're in a kind of man machine mind like a symbiotic yeah relationship. symbiotic relationship with the car yeah i was actually curious i mean we know that like the the racer x article and and all that uh how were you able to infiltrate the street race culture how did you get to see your first race oh that was hard you know this was truly a secret world mm-hmm. i mean when i read the vibe magazine article i had no idea this had existed and then i i wanted to get in underground and uh it was actually through craig lieberman at sema that i you know when i found out there was a street racing organization and i found out it was a track-based thing i my eyes Uh, went at half mass (laughs) but i met craig and i listened to his spiel about how to get this off the street make it a legitimate sport and all i heard all that but I said it's an outlaw sport, and mm-hmm. the minute you make an outlaw sport, you've you've just clipped its balls, you know. You yep. made, you've neutered it, and I said, can I speak to somebody in the race world that goes out on the street? And you go, I don't know anybody like that. I said, I know you know people <laughs> like that, or because you're trying to get them onto the track. Who are you trying to get onto the track? And I kept at it until finally he gave me a name of R.J. Devira. Who's in the movie? Who's right? in yeah. the movie? He's yeah, he was the, a consultant, right? The, yeah, for the yeah. races. Smart, smart guy, and he said, "All right, meet me at Bob's Big Boy at three a.m." And three a.m. Awesome, wow, man. Yeah. That's totally like right. a film noir movie. So, from the time I went to Bob's Big Boy uh, at three three a.m. and met him, and went out onto San Fernando Road and blocked the traffic and had the scanners. Everything I saw is the exact thing I put in the Paul mm-hmm. Walker experience mm-hmm. because I was a stranger in a strange land. And, of course, as Paul in that part of the film is a stranger in a strange land. So the multi-ethnicities, the clothes, the stereos blaring, every kind of music um, it just made this vivid impression. And then, you know, the, about four races had gone off. And then uh, I was making notes on, I, I was writing on my hand. I was writing on. Were they like, this on, dude's a narc? You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, any word I heard, like the first time I heard Nas, mm. you know, Nas, what's that Nas? And like, what's Nas? <laughs> you know, I'd say to me, like, you know what Nas is? <laughs> you know, so, so, um, all of a sudden, it was popo, 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 and everybody <laughs> scattered yeah. like cockroaches when you turn the light on in a New York apartment. Yeah, they finished with that murder. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and, the murder's done. And, and that was the night that I knew this had to be a movie. This was a thing so colorful, so American, so multi-ethnic, so deliciously textured, mm-hmm. colorful. Audio, oral mm-hmm. intensity, because those cars don't sound like normal cars, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm I'm happy because the sound of those cars could make you laugh in the beginning, because they're so not what we think of American muscle cars. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, they're high pitched compared to the basso of a Charger, and uh, uh, I just we. I wrote that scene myself, and then, you know, we had several different writers, uh, David being the first one, and then different other other people. Uh, Gary Scott Thompson had written a draft, but the draft was based too much on the magazine article, in my opinion, and I just felt this was an L.A. story, not a mm-hmm. Queens, New York story. Oh, I don't yeah, think it absolutely. would have worked at all. Yeah, it would have been very different. York. And it, he had some story elements, as I remember, that were kind of like the kid 
could be a street racer or a great concert pianist. <laughs> that's, oh, no. that's a memory oh, no. I have. Don't, I'm sorry, <laughs> Gary. Lighting, I'm it? sorry, Gary, if I got that wrong. <laughs> but that's what I remember. And I think, this is not what it's about. He's actually right. a cellist. <laughs> well, that's, that's uh, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, God. If, if Brian had also been like a promising Juilliard student, it would have been horrible. <laughs> um, I do have to ask, um, there's an extraordinary amount of depth in, in these characters. Like, were you the... Who who came up with the original concepts of Brian Dom and because the really cool thing you pointed out in the commentary is like Brian is like the sun, Dom is the moon, and then you have the Rick Yoon character. You know Johnny Tran is like the antagonist. It's kind of like the good, the bad, and the ugly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and it it comes up. It's the same thing. I was also thinking like it's a western because you have you have the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Tuco and Rick Rick Yoon is as close to Lee Van Cleef as you're going to find. He's amazing. He is amazing. He's He's a a great. You only need those eyes, you know. You know, he's a tall, strong, very handsome guy, very good actor, and. you know, in the end, I David Ayer and I were lifting the plot of Point Break, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which we've always admitted, because I love Point Break. Yeah. And in yeah, fact, we all do. I've yeah, been doing really. I've been doing some work with Keanu Reeves, and really? and awesome. I he signed my first edition, you know, original awesome. vintage poster of Point Break, <sighs> nice. which has become a very prized possession, and. Um, but we stole Point Break, and then David Ayer and I went to to the um, Fairplex, I guess Pomona, mm-hmm. and we went to one of these after-car market conventions, and that, again, we spent all day scribbling on leaflets and things as we heard the lingo, as we heard the names of things, intercoolers and da-da-da-da. And... Um, and finally, he and I started to evolve the characters, you know, because we, I already had Paul mm-hmm. as the, the undercover cop. So I said, okay, Paul's Keanu Reeves, mm-hmm. so we need, you know, Bodhi. Mm-hmm. And, but Bodhi can't be Mr. Spiritual, but a criminal. He's, he's got to be of this world. Mm-hmm. And so we began to evolve it around the archetypes of Point Break, but re reimagined for this street racing world. Mm-hmm. And I, I named the character Ter- Dominic Toretto because when I was in high school, and this was my other emotional connection to the movie, I worked at a garage in the little shit-ass town I grew up in, and I, I used to change bearings and spark plugs and all the easy stuff, and pump gas for him for Al Tercello on the weekend. So I wanted to name the character Tercello, but it sounded too Italian, and I needed mm-hmm. something. It could be Cuban, it could be this, it could be that, <laughs> Sicilian, whatever. So I don't know, it just came to me to name Toretto. Mm-hmm. It's got the image of a bull almost. Too, exactly. Right? Yeah. Toro. It's Toro, for yeah, sure. it's Edo, which could be Spanish, could be... Italian, uh-huh. you know. You worked in a garage, but as far as these types of cars, they're very different from, I'm yeah. sure, what you were around. Yeah, no, they weren't around. Mm-hmm. And and in a sense, when RJ was talking about it, uh, David and I had talked about an ADD character mm-hmm. who was the mad <laughs> scientist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, right? uh, what do you call it? That, yeah. The yeah, ADD. ADD. yeah, that yeah. shit. <laughs> <laughs> It's mind blowing. Every fucking kid in America has been told that if, yep. if we they're actually, not an A student, you got ADD, and nobody yeah. knew, ever knew what it was. Yeah, yeah. but you know, um, it, it it just was like getting these place people in place, and then the other writers that came in after David, you know, I said, "You're not changing the plot." So don't even talk to me about changing the plot. This is set. All I want is to enrich the characters. So we got a certain place on the page. When I started casting these people with, with you know, Vin, and I met with them, and we talked about the roles. And, of course, like all good actors, they had real ideas about who they were and what fit and what didn't fit. And... And then there's always that X factor, which is you get on the set, 
you think everybody's character's been basically set, but then they start to work against each other. And as they work against each other, as a director, I say, oh, no, 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 take that several steps deeper. You're, this is not a line to go over. This is a line to get intense with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and you shape it. And that's what a director does, at least that's what I did and do, is try to take the gestalt, take the pot of elements and start to blend so that you can't tell where one character ends and the other begins. And yet they still each have their own thing going on, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like Jesse's got his, like, oh, I didn't go to college for this reason, and Vince has his whole obvious thing. And, I mean, it does feel like every character is really fleshed out, even though, you know, they're supporting. And so I think that's another reason that it really... That's a, you have a very Elmore Leonard approach to to the characters because you you take these completely That's a disparate high characters. I'm, high I'm a massive compliment. well the, here the, I I keep like half of my notes were about how like you created this amazing like sunny noir LA kind of like a point blank uh, if you've ever seen that movie yeah, like it's a sunny movie but it's like very gritty mm-hmm. it always feels like it's like hot and you know everything and like the characters can kind of like they're completely opposite and they want to like hate each other but they can't you know it's, it's very Elmore Leonard yeah and um I think that's really cool how you throw them together and you kind of like try to see what's coming you know um one of the characters that we loved unexpectedly after watching it a hundred times is is Matt Schultz's character of he's great. Of, of Vin- it's Vince because he's, he's an asshole, but you feel but for him. That scene where Mia like like basically goes, where, "What was that restaurant you were going to take uh, me yeah. to?" And he's Thank just I, so, I, I, so I wrote that scene. It's great. Dude, <laughs> so so great. He, he's so happy. He just wants his popcorn. You, no, the weird thing about it is, is like you look at that. Um, and I, I, w- I was going to bring this up later, but you know, you mentioned in your commentary that you're Buddhist, and you have this. You look at these characters with a compassion Still. that you don't get in a lot of other mm-hmm. films. You know what I mean? Like Vince, genuinely, he really likes Mia. He's got a crush on her, and he thinks she's about to like finally say, "Let's go do this," and she just like turns from him, and she's like, "You take me there." You see this crestfallen look on his face. You know, it's such a, it's such an amazing. But the, the, the scene dynamic for that is character. like he, you, you feel bad for him, but he still deserves it. But he's still you know kind I mean? of a yeah. douchebag. Well, yeah. he's yeah. been a douche to Paul, and um, what I love in that scene is Matt just played it so well. He's so busy mm-hmm. hitting the microwave <laughs> yes, to yeah. make popcorn. Yeah. Yeah. And and then he goes back and you see if an Easter egg or whatever, you see that they're watching Dragon, the Bruce mm-hmm. Lee yeah, story. That's my, awesome. One yeah. of my films yeah. on the TV. <laughs> but but I, I just felt like there are no villains in this family. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. are there are less lovable and and less, you know, admirable characters. Mm-hmm. But they're a family. Vince, you know, you know, he when he says it's since the third grade, yeah. right? It's yeah. like you just see these two clowns in the third grade. Yep. You know, two proto toughs in totally. bullying everybody in the third grade. You yep. see them as, you know, the two that you didn't want to get behind the high school with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and here they are, grown up now, and into this brotherhood. Pulling off heists and, yeah, hanging and, out. Yeah, yeah, here comes this new factor. Yeah. You know, that this blonde outsider, this pretty boy, is suddenly in the mix of all their family. And he's the one who's gone. This is wrong. Something's yeah. wrong about yeah. this. Yeah. He's, he's like he knows most threatened. Yeah. yeah, he's he's the one who notices the moment. He's like, nobody likes the tuna. I'm the good looking one. Yeah, he's like he's like nobody likes the tuna at the at the restaurant. Yeah, what you know is what so like, wrong with the tuna? <laughs> <laughs> they have bigger things going on than cooking tuna yeah. sandwiches. Yeah, they're they're pulling off heists, man. They're planning on you know. They're international criminals. Not a dollar store tuna? No. (laughs) Yeah, probably dollar store tuna and not enough mayo. Exactly. (laughs) Over over abundance of relish. It's just bad stuff. Uh, Bad stuff. This is kind of a specific question. Uh, There's at the party where Vince and um, Brian are getting into an altercation, you see a a gun on the coffee table that is never referenced again. Uh, Not a fan of Chekhov? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well... uh, I just had to break the rule. Of course. Right? It's like you don't have to pull it out of the drawer in the third act. But also, I wanted it subtly 
imply that real violence could take place. Which is our, I yep. think, our theory, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because sense. Brian realizes it. He sees the gun, and he's like, this Yeah, it's more than out. just a fight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not like they can just beat him up. I mean, Vince is crazy enough, at least in his presentation of himself, mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. to pick that gun up and shoot the guy. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's not that they do that. They're not like in John Wick or something. They're not just killing people. But violence has been known to break out in Mm -hmm. these kind of party, overheated, and it was very hot that Mm -hmm. night. That helped us a great deal. I mean, it was probably in the high 90s at night, that summer. the lights on. And the lights Mm -hmm. and everything. And then, you know, to tell a little digression story that's fun is it was so hot, I was dripping wet, and we were changing lighting angles and i went out back to where the picnic table is uh, uh there at the house and there were these two people making out like crazy on the picnic <laughs> table and they l- l- heard me and they looked up and they were both girls so so <laughs> yeah. I, I went to them and i <laughs> sure. said How'd you like to do that on camera? <laughs> did you get smacked? No. They did it do on camera. Do you make porn, when, when you go around the party, there are two girls macking on each other. That is awesome. And so they were real lovers. Oh, they were real. Wow. Yeah, they were not. I love uh, the authenticity of that. Yeah. A reason to watch the movie again. We go spot that. That's awesome. But yeah. later on, when I got the PG-13, I couldn't believe it. Because in that, that time at 2000, you know, having lesbian lovers sure. portraying it was get you an R. Yeah. And later, I had the courage after the movie was all released. I said to the to the MPAA, who gives the ratings, what, "What? Why did you didn't you didn't see the two girls kissing? Then what two girls? Okay, we thought that was a boy and a girl. <laughs> awesome. We're gonna change Suckers. your ratings. They couldn't change their <laughs> yeah. rating." Sweet. But the the PG-13, I was just going to say, it was so important for, and you even mentioned this in the commentary, but I mean, the fact that it could reach, you know, that young You guys. Generation. Exactly. I was exactly. looking for you. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned that I thought was really amazing um, was that you kept the women involved in the in the scenes, and they're very well-written characters. Um, how, how forward-thinking the movie really was. Like, you watch it now, and it's kind of normal right but like back then there weren't women driving around in these scenes and stuff and i noticed there were like more than six or seven female stunt people on on the shoot which you know i we have a lot of buddies in stunts and stuff and like back then there just wasn't that kind of opportunity you know every once in a while you'd have that and it's really amazing how you change that paradigm that way and then the other thing which really blew my mind that i didn't think about you were really using the actors in these action sequences, I, I'm like, that's got to be green screen. No. You actually built these rigs to bring, and so these actors are going 60 miles an hour. That's Matt Schultz up hanging to, from the truck. Oh, yeah and, yeah, and up to 100 miles an hour. That's wild. Like that when, whole semi-stunt is amazing. Yeah, and you thing. couldn't have gotten away with that, too, if the studio had been like micromanaging you. They no. would have been like, eh, Vin Diesel's going to be in a green screen. <laughs> we, we were down outside of Hemet. And, you know, we never heard from them. And that, you know, you want that mm-hmm, because, mm-hmm. you know, their helpful hints are usually bringing the movie to a more neutered, yes. n- neutral. Yep. Can you put a panda in the movie? Yeah. And you're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, we got to yeah. deal with WWF. Yeah. but, but it, <laughs> World Wildlife Fund. You know, it, it just was one of those miracles that their lack of concern paid off in a movie that had edges. Yeah, and it's it's been a long time uh, seeing studio movies with edge. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. And I'm sure that lack of concern had a lot to do with the fact that they weren't established actors. It so was a yeah. low to them. It was a low mm-hmm. budget movie they needed for a spring break release, and it was only after the second research preview with the bad ending off and the numbers mm-hmm. going up again into the high nineties. Um, that they were in the corner whispering and and they came to me and said we want to not release it in the spring we want to release it in the summer i said where they said there's a good spot between spielberg's ai and tomb raider that's amazing i said 
you sure about that? That sounds like a death formula to me, <laughs> you know, because I have the highest regard for Steven. Mm-hmm. And I thought Tomb Raider with Angelina Jolie it seemed like a no brainer. Seemed like a no brainer, which of course tells you what kind of business yeah. this is. But, but my question, though, though, I guess is is so that's my if I were looking at that, I'd be like, wow, they have confidence in the in the movie. Oh, I but you were, were that. you thinking that they were just like, we'll throw it out there and it'll just kind of meh? Well, was that. I said to them, that was my next point. I said, well, if you're going to put it there, you're going to have to advertise it like Spielberg's film. Mm-hmm. You're not going to just dump it out on the public and it'll, there, there's not enough oxygen. Mm-hmm. You have to create the oxygen by mm-hmm. spending money. And they said, we're prepared to do that. I said, I'm taking you at your word because you know I've been double dealt by studios before where they tell you how much they love your movie and how big a job they're going to do. And then when you actually analyze what they did, it was the least they could get away with. Sure. So I was worried that there wouldn't be the support, marketing support, but they were true to their word. At this point, Mark Schmugger, who later became the head of the studio, who's then the head of advertising, you know, head of marketing, he and Stacy Snyder, the head of the studio, they had become true believers you know, it took a long time to get them there, but what they got there right at the end and acted on their belief. So for that, I'm mm. always grateful. Well, yeah. speaking of no-brainers, uh, were you offered the sequel? Or, yes. Because it seemed like a, you know... I was offered the sequel, but I was not offered the sequel in a right way. Gotcha. You know, I went off with Neil Moritz, the producer, to make Triple X, mm. but I was in Prague and then in Tahiti, and uh, for a long time and um when i got when i got to tahiti neil called and said we have the new the sequel because i had proposed the sequel to the movie right away once it opened to 40 point something million which is like pretty much opening to 60 million today Mm -hmm. so you see a 60 million dollar opening now everybody's thought is sequel but then i got answers like um, you won't catch lightning in the bottle twice, Rob. You know, and I got uh, wow. you know from Eight the head. Movies of, later, yeah, here, yeah. Take this backhanded compliment, Rob. <laughs> yeah, the head of the home marketing said to me. Um, I said, "How many DVDs you print?" He said, "Oh, a big print, two million. I said, "Oh no, 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 no." This thing is going to sell six million the opening weekend, and if you don't have the things, you're going to miss out on the on the big pressure. And he goes, oh, "What are you talking about? If it sells two million, I'll eat it." And I said, "Well, you better be ready to munch some vinyl because the truth is, it's going to sell." So, and and I threatened him. I said, "If you don't print six million, I'm going to when the." thing falls short i'm going to go to the press and tell them your lack of vision is why it wasn't as big as it could have been because nobody can get the the dvd so that scared him because he knew i was serious and he printed one or two more million and of course they all sold out by saturday but his comment this is when you talk about racism he goes I know those people. They don't God. spend money on DVDs. Yikes. Those people. <laughs> oh, boy. Right? And I said, you don't know who you're talking about. You don't understand what's happening. You're a typical old school executive who thinks it's going to be the way it was in the 70s. It's different. There's a different audience emerging. Mm-hmm. And this movie has proved it at the box office. Now, don't fuck it up in the DVD sale. The movie ultimately sold 15 million DVDs. That's amazing. Well, speaking of DVDs, one of the things that Zach loves to point out is um, the beginning heist, they're actually stealing VCRs. Yes. And then Uh the dialogue references that they're stealing DVDs, you were kind of at this weird point between... VHS kind of dying yeah. and DVDs becoming like super popular. Um, was it a like a studio mandated thing to make it DVDs or is that kind of no, your idea? No, it was me. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw it coming. Mm-hmm. I knew what it was. I'd been on, in on that ride since Laserdiscs. Just, a, <laughs> yeah. just another footnote. The guy on the phone, mm-hmm. 
the guy in the picture, the big burly guy, mm-hmm. that's Vin's best friend, Val. Oh, that's and, awesome. And kind of his bodyguard kind of factum factotum. Nice. Wonderful guy. Um, the voice is me. Because oh, Val, hilarious. Val, I think, is from the Dominican Republic or somewhere. So he has a very Spanish voice. <laughs> the DVDs, they're on their way. Yeah. And you're like, oh, we're going to we're gonna have to dub that, man. <laughs> you literally, if he just had an, a slight accent, I would have let it go as that's the character. But it, it was like Too so much. thick. He didn't understand it. I feel so. like it's the first line in the movie. Everybody's like, I don't know what's happening right now. I don't know what's going on. Is there going to be subtitles on this? <laughs> Look for a truck with Rogers on the side. Yeah. <laughs> the, so, the, well, I, I wanted to point something out, which I thought was really cool. Because Anthony, we, we were talking on one of the episodes. He was like the driver at the end, the 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 truck driver, the one who was prepared. He was like, it should have been the guy from the first, you know, from the first scene. And we were like, no, nah, it's cooler, you know, whatever. No, but hang on. Arc. But then, but then, listening, to, I transcribed it exactly. Um, you said in in the commentary, it's one of the reasons I never made the truck driver a character. He's not a character. He's an idea. The truck is a monster menace here to even the karmic scales of justice, because for Dominic, the scales of justice between him and Paul Walker ultimately don't have to apply in the traditional way. The karma is paid for here. So was, well, thank was you that for ins- killing my head, Ken, yeah. sir. Was that, was, that, <laughs> was that inspired by Duel? You know, the idea that, that, that it's this faceless well, truck driver? you know, guy? when you look at all the antecedents that I value, um, with, be it H.B. Hilecki's Gone in 60 Seconds, or uh, Spielberg's Duel, where the truck was just became more and more menacing, uh, with its anonymity, um, or you know the the movies that just blew blew me away all through growing up in the movies, all the McQueen stuff and Le Mans, all yeah, you know, just it was they were all great teachers. Some were great teachers of what to do, and some were great teachers that racing looks like racing doesn't get you a hit film. Racing that feels like racing taps into everybody even if they're not have no desire whatsoever to go down a city street at 150 miles an hour right but the idea of that Mm -hmm. and we knew from the second sneak that when we were tallying the cards the parking lot of the theater was filled I mean, filled with hundreds of screeches and burnouts. And these are people in Chevys and, you know. But, they, but it, it, it amped everybody up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not even racers, just... I was going to say, yeah. there, there, there are countless executives who quit their day jobs uh, after seeing that movie, and they were like, I'm getting into racing. <laughs> yeah. Completely I'm leaving like, Hollywood. Uh, their lives. Yeah, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm getting into racing. Um, so I guess before we kind of start to wrap up, like, can we talk about the enduring legacy of this movie? I mean, when, when you're making a picture, obviously you never know if you're going to have a, I, I mean, I, I guess you probably do. You probably have an idea. There's something really amazing going on here. Did you have any idea when you were putting this out that it was going to have such an amazing legacy and that, that all of these countless films were going to spin out of it and like a franchise would be born in such a, no, that's, you, know, you don't even think those thoughts on the toilet right (laughs) you don't dare to dream you know that's like saying oh and i'm gonna win an academy award for the fast and the furious because it was revolutionary of course critics didn't get it of course the establishment didn't get it roger ebert liked it yes he liked it a lot roger roger is the only one who ever liked any of my films right he he understood what i was doing the rest of them are just clowns and Mm -hmm think that the english patient is the best mm-hmm. film that anybody could make <laughs> but movie. um never saw it you oh. know the truth is that i had an idea for the second movie you know and the whole concept was paul is at the end of this one walking towards the cop vins on the run that we literally splice the thing together and start exactly at that place nice. following the two men and how they get back together when Paul has to help Vin, you know, find, <clears throat> find a way home. And 
That's what I proposed. And to finish that other story, when I got the script in Tahiti, it was about taking laundered money through the Florida Keys and those unobtrusive Mandarin orange and chartreuse cars. And I went, I called up the studio and Neil, the producer, and I said, look, I mean, you know I want to do the sequel. It's been my idea to do the sequel, but this is not the sequel. This is some other thing. We need to stay in L.A. We need to stay within the car culture. We do not want to start making crime movies, mm-hmm. right? And, and just have races and chases irrelevant. We need to stay in our core and build it and build this whole cast of characters. Nope, they wouldn't do it. And they finally came to me and said, it's a sad thing, but the ship's going to sail with this script and you're either going to be the captain or you're going to be on shore. And I said, well, I guess I'll stay on shore because I'm not going to deface what I already did. Yeah. Was that was that one of the reasons why Vin Diesel ultimately opted out of the sequel was because you were not involved with it? He kind of felt maybe it was heading in a different direction? We we both did. We Again, we just finished making Triple X. We were on the last few days of shooting in Bora Bora. And, um, you know... I read it. I said, I'm not going to tell you what I think. You decide what you want to do, and then we'll compare notes. And he came to me a day later, and he said, this is awful. Mm. And I said, yeah, I know. So we have to band together and tell them we're not doing it. And we did. And they still went forward because they didn't get it. And then they didn't get it so badly, they made the third one with <laughs> nobody in it Right. Yeah. until Vin came back at the end and the audiences went crazy. And then they went, oh, we better go back to L.A. And right. so, you know, but that's, that's the kind of crap you have to deal with. And, and life dealt uh, a very strange hand with that one. Mm-hmm. I stood on principle. Mm-hmm. I lost the battle. And the, the, they finally got to what I said and then they built on that in the ways that it's been presented yeah well hopefully at some point uh, maybe you'll get to if you're interested do another one I mean I'd love to see like how you would end the series you know just out of curiosity uh, but, I mean, I think it's safe to say that we're not just fans of The Fast and Furious as far as your stuff goes. I mean, I love Daylight. I saw that oh, yeah. in, the, in the theater. Heart. Dragonheart's one of my uh, favorite. Dragon, fa- the Bruce Running Lee Man story. is one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> oh, yeah. I found out you produced that. I was like, what? Uh, I watch <laughs> it at least once a year. <laughs> I actually have a Dragonheart uh, question. What was it like directing Sean Connery as a voice actor? Because at that point, he didn't do a lot of voice acting. No. Um I flew to the Bahamas where he lived and we went to Chris Blackwell's place, Compass, I think it was called Compass Point. But anyway, we went to a rock and roll recording studio and I had brought all the maquettes, all the drawings, all the atmosphere drawings, all the storyboards. And I sh- before we recorded, I said, Sean, we, we got to you know, go through this so you see where we're going. He was so loving when he said, not many directors are prepared these days. And, <laughs> and I, I said, well, you know, this is what we're doing. And we did a pre-record. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of the pre-record, he says, let's go to my club for lunch. <laughs> and, and we went to this country club um, where he played golf. And we, ha- you know, we were walking in. And this little guy came out of the men's room and right in Sean's path. And, you know, Sean is 6'6", six, six, and big 6'6". Six, six. Yeah. And the guy looks up, and he suddenly sees who he's in front of. And I guess he got so nervous, he went, I'm Bond. I'm James Bond. <laughs> right? And Sean says, get out of my way, you bloody dickhead. <laughs> Nice. So from oh. that morning on, we were bonded, and I love literally James bonded. Yeah. <laughs> James bonded. James Bond. I, I gotta say, I'm a big gamer, and my Xbox gamer tag, like my my little identification, is actually I am the last one. 
I am the last. Well, I am one. the last one. Yeah. I had I had this horrible image of you like recording and everything in the movie coming out. Him going, wait a minute, I'm not the picture. You're like him freaking out. <laughs> yeah. What's what's with the dragon? You know, and you're like, oh. I had to do it. You know, well, yeah. the um, way we did it on set is I ring the set with these huge speakers because the dragon was 18 feet tall, and I needed Dennis to always remember that. We tried cueing Sean's lines to Dennis, but it, there was always a delay and it just mm. threw everything off. So finally I said, Dennis, I do an, a pretty good Sean. I was much better <laughs> then. I said, let me like act against you so there's some form of rhythm to the scenes. And that's how we did it. And I just had my God mic on and nice. just blasted all over the place. And, and I knew how Sean had read it every line because mm. I had recorded with it and then we recorded three more two more times so we did three re- three recordings and uh, and then the final re- version was to tighten the lip sync to the actual animation but it was a br- groundbreaking film uh, it's yeah. completely underrated I love yeah. that movie yeah, it is underrated I saw it like four times in the theaters when I was a kid wow yeah. um, I, I, I can't let you go without you answering one question. Vito told us a rumor. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask that too. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. No, it's your. Well, no, I I had heard a rumor that you originally wanted to cast the Saved by the Bell cast <laughs> as is this because this is a, this is on IMDb. That was the face I made. No, okay, no, because because this is on on Saved IMDb. By the Bell. <laughs> yes. I, I, Rob, I swear to you, I'm not joking. What? On the IMDb page, on the, on the like the the trivia, it said that your original intention was to have like Mario Lopez play Dom. Mark Paul Gosler play Brian and Screech play the Jesse character and we were like mind blown and also like that would have been the worst thing that, ever made that is somebody on LSD okay okay good okay. yeah mystery yeah. solved I don't even okay. know what that is okay I mean frankly okay. I never Thank heard goodness. of Saved by the Bell that's awesome it's, I'm kind of sad but <laughs> yeah. also relieved, relieved at the same yeah. time yeah. Yeah, you so. can't trust IMDB they're just so much false information Exactly. Yeah. On there. That's too bad. I mean, it's not too bad. I guess I'm happy, no. but I'm sad. Yeah, we're, we're yeah. happy. We're it's happy. Like a, I, I don't want to wind up in a, you know, one day I was over at Universal make, making something and there was a, a box and uh, that they gave you for leader, you know, when it was the old days of film right, and right. you had mm-hmm. rewinds and all this stuff. And I one day looked at the leader and it was some film that somebody had made that was not identifiable, right? It wasn't like you could see a picture of Paul Newman or something. Mm-hmm. It was literally a film lost to history. And maybe it didn't deserve to be remembered or whatever. But as a director, you go, I don't want this film that I'm making to turn mm-hmm. out to be leader. Yeah, mm-hmm. I want yeah. the film I'm making to be a precious thing that people preserve. So... No, I would not do save, but good, good, good. awesome. <laughs> just Rumor really dispelled. Yeah. Yes, I was gonna say I, um, leader is like the first. What is it like three feet or so of, of film tape that well, lead up to what you're actually gonna use? Well, when you're in that form of antiquated editing, and believe me, nobody, nobody applauded the did the coming of digital editing more than me. Oh yeah, but you'd have to space out the reels Mm -hmm. so if the picture's running and you're doing a sound effects reel you have to run leader till you get to your sound effects piece Mm -hmm. and then run more leader because that's the only way in those days to build what would one day become a composite track so there was a lot of use of garbage film but Every piece of garbage film was somebody's baby once. That's right. Citizen Kane 2, leader. <laughs> Goodbye. Casablanca 2, leader. <laughs> so, well, this was amazing. This was yes. freaking great. Thank you so thank much you. for taking the time no, to come out and join pleasure. us. Yeah, yeah, this is pleasure. it blew my mind. Um I, I do want to thank uh your manager Craig Baumgartner mm-hmm. over at uh, Zero Gravity. Craig Baumgartner. Baumgartner, yeah. excuse yeah. me. And then uh and his assistant Brittany mm-hmm. who really helped us out and yeah, got us in touch a, with she you. She's great. Um, it's mind blowing to me if you would have told me 20 years ago that I'd be meeting my heroes and doing podcasts with them, I would have told you you were crazy. But 
I, I'm honored that you came in to do this for us, and and we're really appreciative, and we love your movies, and and what do you, are, are you working on a picture right now? Like, what's your next project? You know, this year um, was a, a great year of reorganizing my life. I I got divorced and married the woman I love, and um, I prepared several movies that ultimately did not happen, which. You know, when you try different things, it doesn't always fit the formula of what people are looking for at a current moment. And now I'm on to other things. And, and yeah, I'll be making a new movie in 19. You know, it's going to be one of three things. Cool. Nice. But it's top secret at the moment. At the moment. We're, we're waiting. We'll, we'll moment, wait with bated breath. Yes. I don't want to get the producers so, oh, sure, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. upset. Yeah. So. Well, anything you want to say before we... Uh, Close no, the book. I, well, I, I want to say something. Yes. I want to say this has been the most enjoyable interview I've ever oh, wow. had. Oh, wow. Oh, come on. No, seriously? Really, seriously. Thank you so much. It's the most fun. And listen, what director doesn't want to be on a podcast with people who like what he did or she That's did? True. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like salve on a very badly sunburned soul <laughs> because this is not the easiest business to, yeah, to work in. And you get a lot of slaps and a lot of low punches, mm-hmm. and uh, and so to be in an environment like this, which is admiring of what I've done, but a- actually, a three guys who are film lovers mm-hmm. instead of professional haters, mm-hmm. you know, it's a rare thing in the world today. Thank yeah. you. Well, thanks I, uh, a lot. My my other gig is I'm a critic for Film Threat, and I always try to find one good thing about a movie. Even if I hate it, you know, it's like you said, every movie is somebody's baby. Yeah. I, I absolutely believe that. And believe me, with every negative comment, somebody's getting drops of hydrochloric acid on their <laughs> penis. <laughs> so, right. so it's Ouch. It's, it's definitely an, these people who never made anything, never can't make anything, mm-hmm. just get together and get their little lemming act together and being so. negative and anonymous is yeah. very yeah. easy yeah it's very yeah. easy yeah. very yeah. Easy. too easy actually yeah well on that note again i think that about says everything about fast yeah, and that, furious that wraps up our special yeah. wrap-up episode absolutely uh, for the first fast and the furious movie Cool. Well, uh, you want to plug anything real quick, Vito? Or um, you can just find usual? me at Vito Lapicola on Twitter. I, I never tweet other than episodes of the show, mm-hmm. but uh, you can find me there. Anthony? I'm at This Game Cheats, and apparently I gave up my game Xbox gamer tag, so... That's okay. I am the last one. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, check out Film Threat. I write there all the time, and I produce the podcast. Awesome. And I'm Zach Farrell on Twitter. That's R-E-E-L. You can tweet the podcast at SoFastPodcast. And our email is SoFastSoFuriousPodcast at gmail.com. No, SoFastPodcast at gmail.com. If you say it's actually, I think it's I so think fast, it's so so fast anyway. so Furious Podcast. Yeah, it's so fast, so furious. Look how podcasting. organized we I know. are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you have any social media you want to plug? Or is that... I'm, I'm on Instagram okay. at, at uh, SurfDGA. Nice. You know, so I would enjoy all people interested i have a lot of posts that are private fast and furious pictures as well as backs backstage pictures of, of most of my films awesome I'll be following that and uh we we'll hope you see us all next week all right thanks again thanks all right good night